So uh, I was told to speak very loudly because there are people here without their hearing aids. <laughs> who's, who I will not mention who they are. My mother, no, I'm sorry. But uh, I just wanted to thank you for those who prayed for my trip to Sweden. I don't know if you remember in December I went to Sweden. And I can't remember how much information was given, but I was tasked by the executive director of Shelter for Life to visit one of our field directors. Uh, he's a Rwandan, a civil engineer, a very fine Christian brother, and he was our country director in Liberia for projects we were doing there. He went back to Sweden for a visit with his family, and he was arrested uh, with an indictment on genocide and war crimes in Rhodesia. And if you know the history of Hotel Rwanda, sorry, Rwanda, Hotel Rwanda, and if you've seen that movie, it's pretty incredible. But anyway, so they wouldn't extradite him, so they tried him in Sweden, and so he's in prison in Sweden uh, on a life sentence. And so I visited him, I visited his family, I was there six days, had total mobility, was able to get where I needed to go. God really worked beautifully. And uh, you can pray for the brother, his name is Stanislav. He claims total innocence. You know, basically, Rwanda was total chaos, so it's very hard. And it's one of these things about he said, they said. So do pray for him, but it was a tremendous trip. And everything was accomplished. And I was very, very encouraged. So thank you. Every year, at the beginning of the year, the Lord has me pray to see if I can receive a prophetic word for the year. And I don't take this lightly. I really take it seriously. And usually it's a verse or a phrase or something, and then I meditate on that. But this was really very clear. The Lord said, this is going to be a year of harvest, a year of harvest. And uh, so I just kind of let that rest because I wasn't sure when he wanted me to do it. And the next Sunday, uh, Joel was leading the service, and he greeted everybody, and he leaned over and said, this is going to be a year of harvest. I'm sitting there now, poke my wife. And it was just very encouraging. And as things developed, it really seemed to be that was of the theme that the Lord was uh, presenting. As I meditated on that, I felt like the Lord also said, it's going to be your fruitfulness. A year of fruitfulness. I don't want to kind of develop that. In Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a list of seven things that the Lord admonishes the shepherds of Israel that they are not doing. Seven different things, responsibilities. And uh, two of those in Ezekiel 34.4 are these. If you look at Ezekiel 34.4, to bring back what was driven away and to seek out what was lost. That was one of the, two of the seven things that were not being accomplished. In the NIV, it says to bring back the strays and to search for the lost. And I believe the Lord is saying this will be a year of us harvest regarding those who know the Lord but have strayed. And, you know, Tulsa is a city of Christians. It's amazing. It's hard to find a lost person. I told them I was up in Ohio, and I said, you know, I have to come to Ohio to find lost people, you know. They're just bruised, and, and 
you know, it's, it's, it's just a, a city of scattered sheep. And we know that. So, those who have strayed and those who are lost. Fruitfulness. I thought about that. I meditated on that. And I felt like the Lord said that this will be your fruitfulness in seeing the answers to persevering prayer fulfilled. Okay, a year of harvest, a year of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in seeing the answers to persevering prayers being filled. That God is going to answer prayers that have been offered up to him over and over in faith, yet not having seen the results. So I finished the message, and then I kind of went over it, and I realized that what the Lord was saying here is that this prophetic word is conditional. It isn't something where you just sit and watch it take place. We have to participate for this word to come to pass. The idea of a prophetic word being conditional is the prophet's escape clause. Okay? I thought about that. But you have to enact it before the prophecy, not after. I'll give you an example. There was a contemporary prophet in America who once prophesied that Bill Clinton would experience a dramatic conversion experience and the nation would experience revival. When that didn't happen, there were leaders that confronted him about it to hold him accountable, and he said, well, it was because the people of God did not pray enough. So you can't do it afterwards. <laughs> so, okay, so it's a conditional prophecy or promise. Can you think of one in Scripture? Can you think of one? The one I think of immediately is the one that's been quoted many times in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a promise. It's a prophetic promise, but it's conditional. I think it's interesting, and I don't know if you heard this or not, but... Uh, Mike Pence, who's now our vice president, is a Christian brother, and he said that he wanted his, the Bible open to that area of Scripture, and he wanted to lay hands on that as a promise from God as he was sworn in. And if you noticed at the inauguration, his was the only Bible that was open. I thought that was really uh, encouraging. So what is the condition regarding this prophetic word? Think about that. Well, the condition would be obedience. It would be to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the fulfillment of this word. But I want to be specific. What is the condition for the word on harvest to be fulfilled? That we would be obedient and proactive to share our faith with the lost and to seek out those who are astray and to restore them to the church. What is the condition from fruitfulness? this issue of prayer, that we would continue to persevere in prayer with an expectation that God will answer our prayers. And I believe that if we do that, if we are faithful to do those two things, that's exactly what's going to happen. That there's something pregnant in the atmosphere wanting to move, but we have to take action. We, I, li I like this word proactive. I like the word cooperate, because it's God. But I like the word cooperate. Well, let's look at what the scriptures say about these two topics. Now, 
whenever you get into the issue of persevering prayer and harvest, you're going to cover some scriptures that all of us know, uh, some key scriptures. Uh, you immediately think of Matthew 9, 36. I'll wait for you. Matthew 9, 36 through 38, where Jesus said he saw the multitudes. Actually, when I was reading this, I saw some fresh things for me. He said, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Now, somehow that really struck me. This thing about having a burden for the lost, having God's heart for people. You know, when we walk into a grocery store and we see the masses of people, and I do, when we see the masses of people, and, and sometimes you can just see their condition looking at them, their situation. They're with their kids and different things are going on. You know, Jesus looked, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered. I mean, I was, I was also thinking how, you know, this is continual in his time, our time. And I think as we move forward into these days, it's going to be worse and worse. It's going to get more. Like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Specifically, this is talking about praying for laborers, and we should pray for laborers, but we should also be the answer to that prayer where we are, okay? We are to label in the field in which God has placed us. We need to pray that God would give us boldness and wisdom necessary to enter into the labor of the harvest. John 4, 34 through 38. And this is kind of the other verse that immediately comes to mind. And again, new things. You know, it's interesting how you read a verse over and over, but at the very beginning, see that one was he was moved with compassion. Here it says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Is that our food? We should have the heart of Jesus. This is our food, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This, this should be our heart. No, I, I don't want you to be at all condemned, but conviction is good. And then to pray over these kind of things. Lord, give me this heart. Give me this heart. Do you not say... There are still four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. It's interesting. My, my wife and I were just down in Yuma, Arizona, visiting my son Joshua and the family. And there's an area you travel through once you get through the mountains, uh, from California, and you get out on this plains, and it's one of the breadbaskets of America. Uh, they were harvesting cabbage and cauliflower, and there's just fields and fields and fields. And it's, it's it, my wife mentioned this, it's like Israel, the desert has bloomed, because it's desert. But they have the Colorado River, and they have this incredible irrigation system. And all this stuff is going on, and it's one of the breadbaskets of America. And the reason is, they have year-round harvest year-round harvest. They have three seasons. You know, it never snows, gets a little cold, but three seasons of harvest. So what we're saying here is the fields are always white for harvest. They're white for harvest. For in this the saying is true, 
One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you've not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. I sent you to reap that for which you've not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. I was thinking what a beautiful promise that is. We are not alone in the labor. We are amongst a great multitude who are with us and have gone before us in this labor. And God has prepared the way. God has prepared the way and prepared people's hearts. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, a classic area. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's God's heart, reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God. That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I looked up this word to entrust. It means to commit to another with confidence. The idea that you give something to someone expecting them to do with it what you've asked them to do. There's an expectation on God's part to consign, to relegate, to commend. God has given us a stewardship. He has entrusted us with this word of reconciliation. What will we do with it? It kind of reminds you of the story of the talent, you know. What will we do with this responsibility? Will we fulfill this trust he has given to us? And then it says we are ambassadors. And, you know, traveling in a lot of foreign nations, I, I understand that. An ambassador is someone who lives in a foreign country and he represents the country he's come from. Okay? We are not of this world. We are from the kingdom of heaven. The ambassador has authority and responsibility. One of the responsibilities he has in authority is to grant entrance into the country he's from, you know, getting a visa, this kind of thing. And that's our responsibility. We are Christ's ambassadors. We represent the kingdom of God. And through our witness and them accepting Christ, we can give them entrance into this kingdom. And I remember I, I did a message similar to this years and years ago, and I remember the Lord said, if, and it was the coined the phrase, if we don't do it, who will? If we don't do it, who will? And finally, it says this. It is as though God were pleading through us. And I looked that up. It's actually a Greek word, and it means to beg or to plead. Can you picture that? God begging people to come into his kingdom. What a privilege it is to enter into the kingdom of God, and yet he's begging us to enter into the kingdom. And he wants to beg through us. If we will give place to his spirit, step out in faith, be proactive. He will beg people through us 
to come into his kingdom. What should be our motivation for evangelism? I mean, as a, as a, just because of the issues that have gone on in my life, obedience is a great motivation for me, just because God said to do it. But actually, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ compels us that those who live should live no longer for themselves, talking about us, but for him who died for them and rose again. That we should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. And the love of Christ should compel us to take responsibility, to love the lost, those who are astray, those who are hurting. Jesus died for them, and we need to have the heart of God. We need to see with the eyes of God. We need to have a burden for the lost and those who are astray. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans 10, 8. Again, these are classic uh, verses. Romans 10, 8 through 15. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then it goes on down, well, let's finish. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then it gets into the issue. How then shall we call on him in whom, they, how shall they call on him whom they, whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. As you look into this and divide these things up and look at each particular area, this word preach in the Greek means to proclaim publicly. When we think of preach, we think of preacher. The scriptures aren't trying to communicate that. It's talking about Speaking about the Lord in public might be one person, two people, more, okay, to proclaim publicly. That if we don't proclaim publicly, they will not hear, they will not believe, and they will not be saved. God has chosen us to be his witnesses. Um, he has not chosen the angels. We, we do hear about angelic visitations, but... He has not chosen the angels. In Hebrews 1.14, it says that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So it sounds like as you are proactive in this activity, the angels come and aid you. The angels are actually sent forth to minister both to us and to those we witness to, those who will inherit salvation. It is our responsibility, and if we don't do it, who will? Uh, Jim Garrett and I were in Morton, Illinois, in a Mennonite church uh, for ministry, and, and there was a prayer meeting. And we went to this prayer meeting, and it was in a prayer room in the church. 
and as we were praying, I happened to look up, and there was a poster on the wall, and I really took note of it and wrote it down, and it, the poster said this, in my estimation, the greatest threat to Christianity is not communism, not atheism, and not cultism. In my estimation, the greatest threat to Christianity is Christians who are trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith or becoming involved. We were in a church, it's called Champion Church, in Yuma. And the pastor was preaching something, and he hit, hit these, some of these same areas. He called it Secret Service Christians. Nobody knows. And when you meet another Secret Service Christian, you just show them your badge, you know. It was really cool. It was a whole me- I won't give you his message. It was really good. But that's what it's talking about. We need to step out of our comfort zone. You say, well, that's not who you are. Inside, it is who you are. Because outside, who you are, by the way, who you are died at the cross. Who you are. Right? We are now, what did this say? Hold on here. I don't want to misquote it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Okay? So we need to move out of our comfort zone, trust God, and share our faith with those in our circle of influence. And I've used this term many times, and you've heard it, but it's good to hear it again. Your circle of influence is where you live, your neighborhood, where you work or go to school, and where you move about in your daily life. That's your parish, you know, your field of influence. And we need to be faithful to share our witness in that field of influence. Now, there's a book, and I I highly recommend it. It's a missions book. It's called 70 Great Christians. I think you can get it through Voice of the Martyrs by Goffrey Hanks. And in Chapter 3, entitled Christianity Comes to Britain, it clarifies the result of this kind of obedience, just just being a witness. And uh, you think about England, you know, England was one of the greatest mission-sending nations in the world for, what was it, 17, 1800s? And here's what it says. How Christianity came to Britain, they try to track down, you know, poses an even more difficult question and is possible only to conjuncture an answer. The most appealing suggestion is that Christianity was brought to these shores by ordinary people. Like most religious ideas in the first three centuries, it may have been brought by traders who heard the gospel in other parts of the empire. The churches of Lyons and Vienna and Gaul, for example, were probably founded by immigrants from Asia Minor in the second century. And the message could easily have been carried further to Britain by merchants. It's also possible that Britons traveling abroad could have become Christians and on returning to their native land shared their faith with others. Whatever is the case, it is certain that the church in Britain was not founded as the result of an evangelistic mission, but because ordinary people shared the good news of Jesus with their friends and neighbors. A whole nation won. This is God's strategy. These other things aren't bad, but this is God's strategy. Ordinary people proclaiming the gospel wherever they went. 
Bill Sanders, our founding pastor, used to say, wherever you go, you are to gossip the gospel. It should be so preeminent in your being just to gossip the gospel. God has entrusted us to the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. We need to be faithful to fulfill his trust. If we do this, I believe this will be a year of harvest. We need to be proactive. A year of harvest. Number two, fruitfulness. Persevering prayer with expectation will bear fruit. You immediately think of Luke 18, 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Then he spoke a parable to them. I, I mentioned when teaching this one time in, in Ukraine <clears throat> that the lesson is in the center, but the two points that the Lord wants to make, one is at the beginning and one is at the end. He prefaces this uh, parable with what he's trying to say. So the first thing he says is, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That gets the women off the hook, right? You know, it, it's interesting how, you know, gender, you know, th a lot of times when it says men, it's gender, gender, gender neutral, you know? God made man, male and female, he made man. Talk about mankind. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. There's a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. There was a widow in that city. She came to him saying, get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who, who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The preface is, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. If they do, then God will really find faith on the earth. What he's saying here is that persevering prayer is faithful prayer. The true faith is not getting something instantaneously, but true faith is persevering in prayer, having not yet received. God sees that as faith. That is true faith. Luke 11, 9 through 13. Luke 11, 9 through 13. That reminds me, you know, I prayed for my father. Um, when my dad retired, my dad got early retirement. He was 55, wasn't he, Mom? 55. I think he was like 55. That's a great age to retire. But he worked for General Motors, this huge plant, and they were shutting the plant down. And they didn't want to have to send him to Detroit and retrain him. They offered him uh, early retirement. He took retirement at 55. And he and mom were planning on moving to Texas to live with her sister and uh, husband, who had offered him, I think, property. I don't know. But they were, that's what their plan was. And we had prayed and prayed and were very concerned because my uncle was not a Christian. My aunt was a quiet Christian. And dad wasn't saved. 
and our great fear was they'd go down there and he'd die unsaved. We were just very, so we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And I called mom and I said, you know, I said, you know the Lord and you're saved. I said, but dad does not know the Lord. And if you go to Texas and he dies down there, I said, he'll die not knowing the Lord. You need to come to Tulsa. And she prayed about it, and they decided to come to Tulsa. So they got a house out in Catoosa. They came to Tulsa. Dad was in the church, and he loved the church. Uh, he had an experience one time. Don Treadway was here that he was praying for people, and Dad got his hearing, you know, his bad hearing. And uh, God healed, uh, not totally, but, you know, he didn't have to wear hearing aids. I mean, some great things happened. But I prayed for five years. I remember distinctly five years praying and fasting for my dad's salvation. Not that I didn't continue to pray, but I mean, those were the five perseverance. I continued to pray, but I remember distinctly. And there came a time where dad came to me and he said, I want to be baptized. I said, but dad, you've been baptized in the disciples' church. He said, no, I really feel I need to be baptized. So I said, well, why don't you go talk to Bill? So we went and talked to Bill Sanders, and he came out, and I said, Bill, what's going on? He said, your dad got saved. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he, he told me, he said, he just decided that it was time that he just need, needed to give everything to Jesus. And I baptized my dad. December 17th, the year before he died. He died the next December, one year. Perseverant prayer. Perseverant prayer. If, you, if I say to you, uh, Luke eleven nine. if I say to you, ask, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know to have, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This, uh, these verbs in the Greek, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present tense, which means ongoing action. So this isn't like seek and you'll get, ask and, and, and you'll receive, it's an ongoing thing. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking and keep on knocking. And I remember I was in Ukraine. I was teaching in a seminary and I went, knock and keep on knocking. And I grabbed the door and I went, that, they started laughing, you know. Whenever you get demonstrative in these kind of countries, they just like, oh, that's cool. The pastor's getting home. But this is what it means. Keep on knocking until it happens, and you will receive. E.M. Bounds, a well-known American Christian author of the late 1800s, wrote seven small books, Men of Prayer, Purpose in Prayer, and actually Mardell's has it now in a tome. All the books are in there. It's really good. They've republished it. And this is from the little book, Purpose in Prayer. The strongest one in Christ's kingdom is he who is the best knocker, consistent. George Mueller, German Christian evangelist, prayer warrior, director of orphanages in England, who coveted with God not to share his needs with anyone, but to pray about everything, small and large. 
and, and I've shared this with you, so you may remember, but it, you can't go into this area without looking at this. He said this, the great point is never to give up until the answer comes. Write that inside your Bibles or on your iPads or your iPhone or whatever. The great point is to never give up until the answer comes. I have been praying for 63 years and eight months for one man's conversion. He is not saved yet, but he will be. How can it be otherwise? I am praying. And as recorded, Mueller's friend did receive the Lord, but it didn't happen until near the open grave. As Mueller was lowered, this man gave his heart to the Lord. Prayers of perseverance had won another battle. Mueller's success can be summarized in four powerful words. He did not quit. I think that kind of the whole Christian life, you know. He did not quit. Charles Spurgeon, 1800s, great preacher and revivalist, said this, if a person believes he can become powerful in prayer without making a commitment to it, he is living under a great delusion. If only we Christians would remember that perseverance in prayer is necessary for it to be effective and be victorious. Remember, we must pray to pray and continue in prayer so our prayers may continue. This is a new quote I found. William Arthur, a Wesleyan Methodist minister, said it this way, prayer that uses previously unanswered prayers as an excuse for laziness has already ceased to be a prayer of faith. To someone who prays in faith, Unanswered prayers are simply the evidence that the answer is much closer. Is that good? If we do this, if we continue and persevere in prayer, I believe this will be a year of fruitfulness in regard to answered prayer. So what are we to do? Number one, to be obedient and proactive, to share our faith with the lost, and to seek out those who are astray and restore them to the church, to take responsibility for our sphere of influence. Number two, to continue to persevere in prayer with an expectation that God will answer our prayers, always to pray and not lose heart. Even as George Mueller, he would not and I have coined that so many times. You cannot quit. He would not quit. If we do this, then I believe this will be a year of harvest and a year of fruitfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Stan. You might think about, as we're looking at this, how to pray to fulfill this word. How, how to pray. It might be uh, a prayer of uh, repentance. It might be a prayer of empowerment. Lord, give me, give me power. Show me. Uh, think of something very uh, specific we could pray about here individually uh, in regard to prayer. Lord, I'm picking that back up, and I'm just going to keep praying until it happens. So, Lord, we just thank you for the word of God. Uh, we thank you so much that by the Holy Spirit you allow us to expound on the Word of God, but the Word of God itself has so much life and so much power 
to deliver and, and to empower and, and to bring conviction. We just thank you for the clarity of the Word of God and, and how every time we read a scripture, something new comes out of it. How living and powerful, how living and powerful the Word of God is. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask you, Lord, for it to go deep inside as a seed into the ground and that it would germinate and bear fruit. God, that we wouldn't come back a year or two later and hear a similar word and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that this word be alive and active in us and bring forth the necessary results. And, Lord, let this be a year of harvest. Let us see it, a year of harvest and a year of fruitfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.